Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is the podcast designed to help you lead your life enthusiastically today, tomorrow, and every other day of your life. I am your host, Ron Kaiser. I'm a positive health psychologist and also author of the award-winning and best-selling book, Rejuvenating the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. My website is www.thementalhealthgym.com, and I'm always happy to hear from you about all kinds of things involving positive psychology, healthy aging, and even suggestions for future podcast guests. Today, we have a special treat in store for us because our guest is someone who does something quite unique and does it throughout the world in, in many ways. Dr. Jackie Black is a marriage educator and board-certified coach serving couples in trouble and couples facing life-threatening and chronic illness. She was named by Cosmo as one of their most beloved international love gurus. Dr. Jackie serves private clients around the world and is an author, speaker, and frequent presenter and guests actually on three continents. So we've got someone with an international following as well as a really unique set of skills. Dr. Jackie, welcome to the Rejuvenating Podcast. We are so happy to have you with us. Thank you so much, and I'm so happy to be here with you today, Dr. Ron. Let's get started. As I said, you have kind of a unique set of skills, and I'm kind of wondering, I, I was trying to figure it out in my own mind, and I was wondering, what does your work day or work week look like with all these various things going on? A long time ago, I decided that I would take Fridays off, and it was this revolutionary concept. It was many years ago, and a friend of mine called. She was another therapist. I was a PhD psychologist in private practice in those years, and she said to me, let's take Fridays off. I was like, what? Are you nuts? She said, well, let's just do this as, as an experiment for a couple of weeks and see what happened. So I haven't worked Fridays since then. So my work week is generally Monday through Thursday. I don't work Friday. And I actually recently have tried to stay unplugged completely on Friday and Saturday. On Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, I normally will see clients. I see clients on Zoom and Skype so that we can actually do face-to-face -face because I have clients all over the world in eight time zones. So I see clients generally between noon and late in the evening because in Australia, late in the evening is the following day. And then I putter in the morning, I'll putterer. And so I like to get up and just putter in my office and play with my dog and you know he's a puppy now, so we're doing obedience. So I like the leisurely time in the morning, though I will do a podcast like yours first thing in the morning or something that really sparks my interest. Great. Well, it sounds like you've managed to develop the kind of lifestyle that is both enjoyable to you and probably makes you even more productive and helpful to your client base because you're leading your life with enthusiasm. Yes, I, I hope that that's true. You know, if we're not happy and we're not taking good care of ourselves, then we can't take good care of other people. 
And I imagine it's particularly important with the population with whom you're working, those who face chronic or life-threatening illnesses. I've spoken with lots of marriage therapists. I'm sure the audience has heard many. How did you arrive at this as a specialty? Can you tell us a little bit about your journey to here? Thank you for asking. I was in corporate America. I was managing high-rise office buildings for pension funds. I have an MBA. And I got involved as a volunteer at one of the cancer organization fundraisers. And then I met some people from ADEC, which is the Association of Death Education and Counseling. And I was so moved by the work they were doing with people who were ill and dying and the families of people who were dying. And so I got involved in ADEC, the Association of Death Education and Counseling. And I went to conferences and I met a lot of people and I thought, this is really what I'd like to do. I actually got into it very slowly. I met someone from Chicago, Dr. Ken Moses from Northwestern, and he was really talking about grief and loss. And I did a three-day conference with him. And I thought, I need to do this. This really is where my heart is. It really is meaningful work to me. And so I went back to school to get my PhD while I was working in corporate America. And then at some point I said, I'm ready. I'm ready to move out of corporate into a private practice and do the thing that I really am here to do. So I built my private psychology practice. Primarily, I was working in the cancer community. And then later, I was working in the AIDS and HIV community. And in 1999, through a confluence of events, I met a coach on an airplane. LAX to Dulles, I was flying out to meet my son, who was at American University. And I I was so taken by this coach. I didn't know about coaching. I I didn't know the difference between therapy and coaching and counseling. But he was so amazing and really made an impact on me. And when I got back to LA, I looked up, you know, there was no Google in those years. So I did a lot of research the old-fashioned way and found out about coaching and the International Coach Federation. So between 1999 and 2003, I actually transitioned out of therapy into coaching. So I did certification trainings in three coach training organizations. And I knew I wanted to continue my work with illness and death and dying and work with couples. And so I made that my subspecialty, which nobody was doing in those years. In fact, you know, for the first couple of years, people would say to me, what do you do? And I go, I'm a coach. Because, you know, going from being a PhD psychologist and then being a coach, people didn't even know what coaches were. They wanted to know what sport I was coaching. That's quite quite a story. And really impressive the way that you've moved from one career and worked long hours and went to school and found what appears to be a, a real passion and a real, you know, commitment for you. And just so that I'm not assuming that people know, can you give us a short course on the difference between being a therapist and being a coach? I'd be happy to. Coaching starts with where you are today. So it's like, what's going on today? What's missing? What's the gap between where you are today and how you want it to be? And what coaching does is close the gap. And so we are forward thinking and it's very skill-based. 
It doesn't replace therapy. There are many people for whom therapy is the right, the right way to do personal work. When people are willing to, when they're able, not willing, when people are able to set goals or to recognize in themselves what's working and what isn't, they can commit to change, they can experiment with things, they take responsibility, they really recognize that where they are is what they've created and that they can change anything in their lives that they don't like, where change is possible then they are appropriate for coaching. And for people who aren't quite there yet, therapy is the viable way to really go inside and learn about yourself and strengthen the parts that might be broken and build the parts that might need to be built and strengthened. Thanks for that. That's one of the best short <laughs> explanations of the differences that I've heard, and, and I'm sure it's can be very useful to our listeners, but it raises a question in my mind. We're talking about people who you work with, who may have chronic and in, in some cases, life-threatening uh, terminal illnesses. How does one think about facing the future when they're in a situation where that they probably got to with, with feeling not much control in their life? Well, and the fact of the matter is they don't have any control. So my work isn't about healing. It isn't about positively affecting disease process. Although I just want to say anecdotally, it does support healing, the work that I do. But I say to my clients, you're going to be here tomorrow anyway, just tomorrow. And don't you want to live tomorrow in the best possible way? The first thing that happens, and the reason that I focus on couples, is the first thing that happens when somebody gets the diagnosis of life-threatening or chronic illness is that the relationship becomes transactional. The relationship becomes logistical, right? The fight begins. What doctors are we going to see? And it's about getting through the medical system, whatever country you live in, and getting appointments, going to doctors, scheduling procedures, perhaps surgeries, treatments. And so couples are so focused outside of themselves. They're focused, so focused on the doing that they miss the connection. They miss that sweet being present with each other. And the people who are sick really sometimes, one of two things happens. They're either the ones that now get to be focused on. Don't you know I'm the one that's sick? I need this, I need that perfectly legitimate, or they're protecting their loved ones. And so they're not being disclosing. They're not sharing. They're not talking about the truth that's going on inside in their hearts. So the work that I do with couples really helps them to create that framework, that structure where they can reconnect where they can start having heart-centered conversations. We talk about it in terms of being open-hearted, where they know they've committed to each other that they want to hear the truth. You know, they recognize that they're living in a situation that's scary, where there's crappy stuff that they have to talk about and deal with, that each person is dealing individually with the thing that's going on. So the same event creates different reaction responses from each of the partners. So what I help them do is to 
come together and form a way, and sometimes for couples, for the first time in their married life, to really be able to support each other, to comfort themselves and each other, and talk about all the hard stuff. Great, but is there any way that people can prepare themselves for this? I know it's always not necessarily easier, but people can perceive the need for help when they're in a crisis or having a major problem. Developmentally, I know this is something that I utilize with my patients who may not have this type of, of illness, but I do encourage people to prepare for the fact that they are aging, that as they grow older, some of the rules change. Some people accept it, some people, you know, it's a little bit for like some people don't save for retirement. You know, and I'm just wondering if somebody middle-aged listening to the podcast, not having any particular problem, I don't know if this is an answerable question, but is there anything either in the way they structure the relationship as a couple or any other way we can prepare for something that, I mean, you don't study to have a, a chronic illness. You don't go through an apprenticeship for it. Is there anything you can do to prepare? Not only don't you prepare, people are shocked and they're stunned and they are in a, in a moment several days, several weeks of disbelief. So shock, numbness, and disbelief. There is no way, as you say, to study for it. So your intellectual pursuits, your IQ, the success that you have in business, even having a successful marriage for 30 years doesn't prepare people for the kinds of experiences that they have. So if people are listening to the podcast or they know me or they I send a relationship tip sheet to over 38 countries every month. If people know that it's possible, it's possible to be able to have different skills and tools and strategies available to them in their relationship, then they can start to practice. And that's really all we're talking about are skills, tools, and strategies that when everything's going well or you're focused on the other things that are happening in your life, we sometimes don't focus on. How many couples really strengthen that muscle to have difficult conversation? Yeah, it's very, very difficult when you're not facing that particular issue and just, you know, kind of the normal difficult conversations as one goes through the lifespan, you know, the normal stresses of living are often often avoided or dealt with in some hierarchical fashion that one of the spouses is in charge of this and the other kind of bites his or her tongue and so on. Exactly. So now that people know that this is available, that they may be called upon to engage with each other differently, they can start strengthening those muscles. And here's the thing. It actually will improve their relationship if nobody is ever diagnosed with anything ever. There's an opportunity to improve their closeness, their engagement. And, you know, the idea of comforting ourselves and each other is not new, but we don't generally approach comfort as something that we will deliberately or intentionally extend to one another or to ourselves. And it's a really sweet, lovely thing to add to a relationship. Yeah, I can imagine that there are many couples who are listening who can see this as a really logical way to approach life. To some extent, it's kind of like going to the gym. You know, and nobody 
once they get into the habit of going to the gym, really regrets the fact that I've been doing all this stuff. I've been watching my diet and all this, and I, I didn't get any bad disease. It's not only a, a preventive kind of thing, but also the fact that your body functions better, you're, you're healthier, you make better choices. And I think it's the same kind of thing as a couple if they learn those kinds of things. Right. So once somebody gets to the point of having needing your services, having a disease or condition, what's a successful outcome? What do, what do you work towards? Presumably, we can't always stop the disease process for going forward. How do you determine success in working with couples? Right. And, you know, addressing the disease process is not my purview. Anyway, I'm a psychologist and, and now a, a, and a marriage educator and now a coach, a board certified coach. So the only thing, literally, if the outside existential circumstance can't be affected, then the only thing that we can affect is our perception, is our internal experience, our response to that which is happening outside. So a positive outcome for me is when couples reconnect, when they can learn to depend on each other emotionally, when they are more open-hearted, when they are more intentional about how they engage with each other. That engagement and connection become the most important thing in the relationship. Not the doing of the stuff, but the doing is actually being. Okay, and as you were saying this, I was thinking if somebody is not in a relationship, how critical is having a support network? Because it sounds like the connection is is a critical part of, of the work that you do. Yes. If they don't have a partner, a committed partner, and this is true for all people, I always suggest that people join a support group. The Cancer Society, the American Heart Association, all of the agencies have support groups. Hospitals have support groups. Community support groups are very, very, very important. And we know the research is absolute on the longevity of people who participate in support groups. So that would be the first thing, whether you're in a committed relationship or not, is get yourself into a support group with people who really understand what's going on from the inside. We can understand emotionally, cognitively, we can extend empathy, but we don't really get it because our experience is very different. So that would be the first thing. The second thing, when my husband Mark was diagnosed with cancer, colon cancer, I said two things to him. I said, I can do this, but the thing that I absolutely know is I have to do this with you. If I'm worried, if I'm upset, if I'm scared, it's you I want to talk to. It's you I want comfort from. And he thought about that because I knew I couldn't do the martyr thing, be strong. It wasn't how our relationship was set up, and that's not who I am. And he thought about it for a minute, and he said, I can do them. And he did. But we did that very intentionally. And the second thing I said to him was, you know, I want to think about who I want to tell. He didn't want to tell anybody anything. Nobody. So I thought about a couple of friends. I made a list and I came to him a couple of days later and I said, these are some people that I think would be really good support people for me. And take a look at the list and see what you think. I really want you to be on board with this for me, if you, if you possibly can. 
I can't do this isolated. And he thought about it and he said, all right, uh, let me look at the list and, and I'll, I'll think about it. And he came back. He was so cute. He came back the next day and he said, this is really a good idea. And he said, I would be fine with these three people. And he said, and you got me thinking, I need the same thing. So he created a list of people that he thought would be good support people for him. And one of the couples was married. There was a woman, another woman for me and a man for him. They were not married to each other. They were all part of our group. And I think that that was very important for not only me, but for him. And the way that we set that up, we said to them, you don't need to say anything brilliant or profound. You don't need to support us in any way. What we want is just a safe place to hear ourselves think, to talk, to just share what's going on. But we, there are no expectations except that you don't judge us, but we wouldn't have chosen judgmental people. And that you just provide that safe space. And I won't take any more of your time than 15 or 20 minutes once or twice a week. And when we created those parameters, it, we made it as easy as we could for people to say yes. And once we forged those supportive kinds of relationships, the boundaries sort of collapsed and we called when we needed or wanted to and people were wonderful about saying, I'm available now, can you call me back in 20 minutes? You know, that kind of thing. But that was critical, I think, for both of us, as, as well as hiring a professional, which oh, I looked for one but couldn't find one in those years. Well, that's wonderful role modeling, both for your clients and for the people hearing this podcast. I'm quite certain you know the research on loneliness and longevity uh, as well as I do, and certainly we'd like to avoid adding another problem to an already major one by the feeling of loneliness that, yes. that occurs. And isolation, not just loneliness, but isolation. That's another level that's it's damaging to our emotional and our mental health and our physical health as well. So, yes. Great work that you're doing because, again, right. people enter this situation without a lot of practice and without expecting to do so in many cases. Do you find that there are prognostic indicators of who's going to be more successful, less successful with this approach? Yeah, I do. John Gottman is the father of modern marriage therapy. And Gottman has predictors that actually I find in my work are the same things. When people blame each other, when people are contemptuous, you can always tell. In fact, I won't even let people hire me. If during an intake, and I do a two-hour face-to-face intake, and if people are rolling their eyes or frumping or sighing or they're interrupting each other, I won't even let them hire me. And those are people who are not going to be successful. When we talk about being open-hearted, you know, when we talk about deliberate intention, becoming a good listener, listening with empathy. You have to already have those heart, what do we want to call them? They're not skills, abilities already inside you, that you already care about your partner, that your partner's experience about what is going on with them and with you is already present. People that don't want to talk, you know, they don't want to talk, they don't want to think about it. It is what it is. I, I have a list of things on my website and I say, if you think that this is all about your partner and your partner's fault, don't call me. If you think that if your partner wasn't ill, everything would be fine. It's all about that. 
or if whatever is true is, the can't bring change to anything, because whatever you think is true is. And if you believe this is the way it is, then that's the way it's going to be. So I really partner with people, and I use that word very specifically. It's not just a marketing word. I partner with people who want to partner with me, who see me as a partner in the investment that they're making in each other and in their relationship. This brings me back to my marriage and family therapy training days when I learned that one of the best prognostic indicator is how soon do the two spouses or two members of the couple stop blaming the other one for all the problems. So that being able to really be committed to being a partner and working with you obviously is, is a great indicator. What age range of couples do you work with? I generally work with people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. I have worked with younger couples, and the oldest couple I worked with was late 70s. They were so cute together. They were great. And their problem really wasn't so much each other, but their adult children. And I wound up working with them, and then later in the work together, we all came together because their adult children had ideas about what they should be doing and how they should be doing it and that kind of thing. But generally, people, 40s, 50s, 60s. Yeah, I'm sure from their perspective, they hadn't, again, hadn't really had a lot of training in being a parent for their parents and uh, (laughs) to to mess it up a little bit. Right, right. And, you know, I just want to say, too, that I work with couples who are committed couples but aren't married. And there are a lot of committed couples today and in Europe Many people are cohabitating. It is the single most, the largest group of committed relationship construct in Europe is cohabitation. So people who are gay, people who are straight, wherever you are, however you define your life relationship, I support that. And this work is all about people who care about each other, who are invested in each other, however we define that. Thanks for mentioning that because... I'm sure that a lot of times people feel left out from some of the, the more traditional approaches. And it's, it's good to hear it, first of all, but it, I think it's also very practical information for people. Well, people feel disenfranchised if they're just, li- just living together. They may not be included. Adult children may not include them in certain things, or they may not... Because they weren't married, they don't have the right to grieve. So we, we, we want to be very, very careful about not disenfranchising people who have a heart connection. You know, that's important. That's valuable. And we need to value it. Well, this has been so great, getting all this information. I don't always learn as much on a podcast because it's somebody who's presenting things that I know. This is one that was very educational for me. Oh, thank you. And I really appreciate your taking the time to, to be on it and to spread the word. But that leaves the question of how do we get in touch with you? How does somebody who needs your services, you work on three continents, do people reach you online? Is there some place where, where you see people face to face? I'm sure that people will want to reach out if they just know how. We'll have it in the show notes, but let's have it on. Sure. The best way to contact me is email, and that's Dr. Jackie, D-R-J-A-C-K-I-E, at drjackieblack.com. And I do. I work with people. I like working with people on Zoom 
And I have what I call the Dr. Jackie's Zoom Coaching Center. So we work on Zoom, on Skype, people that have iPhones, we can FaceTime. I do a wonderful retreat. I don't often talk about this on podcasts, but I do a three-day retreat in a beautiful, beautiful community so that people can stop the noise. They're in a beautiful retreat hotel. We work in the hotel in a suite. And I take people to lunch. They have evenings on their own, and it's three days. So the retreat, if you really, really want a lot of contact with me and you want to immerse yourself in a lot of what we've been talking about today, retreat is a wonderful way to do that too. But email drjackie at drjackieblack.com. We'll get to the phone immediately. We'll create a time to get on Skype or Zoom or FaceTime and talk about how I can help. Wonderful. The last question I'm going to ask is the least important, but what are the three continents that you... Uh, <laughs> it's so funny when you said that, I, it occurred to me it's actually four. North America, the U.S. and Canada, the U.K. and Europe, Western Europe primarily, South Africa, and uh, Australia. Wonderful. You get yourself around, and it's very important. I'm, there aren't too many people who do your work, and it's good that you can spread it throughout the globe as much as possible. Yeah, thank you very much. You've been a terrific podcast guest, and I can't promise that we won't come back to you in a, in a year or so and see if, if we've got something to add. Feel free to do that. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Great. I know I haven't run out of questions. I've just run out of time. <laughs> yeah. So until next time, Again, this is Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is Rejuvenating with Ron Kaiser. My website is www.thementalhealthgym.com. Please listen, download, rate our podcasts, and be back next time. Take care.